I want to talk to you this morning about the kingdom of God. I want to talk to you about wrapping your life around the kingdom of God. And I want to do two things this morning. I want to begin to show you what it looks like to have your life defined by the kingdom of God. And then I want to show you that this is not uh, an optional step for those who want something extra in the Christian life. This is a matter of eternal life and death. And so, first of all, what do I mean by wrapping your life around the kingdom of God? What am I talking about? I want you to turn with me or look on the screen here to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. And here, one example of what it looked like for real people who were exactly like you and me, who had all the fears, all the needs, all the circumstances that you and I have, What did it look like for real people to live wrapping their whole life around the kingdom of God instead of their own kingdom? Hebrews 10, 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's really pretty simple to see what's going on with these people. He says that after they had been enlightened, that means just after they had become Christians, after they had embraced Jesus Christ and come to know him, After they've been enlightened, they endured a great conflict of suffering. And that's the first thing I mean when I talk about wrapping your entire life around the kingdom of God. These people knew that to embrace Jesus Christ was to embrace and endure suffering. And it says they endured a great conflict of sufferings. Not mild, not light. Not little inconveniences, but a great conflict of suffering. Are you willing to endure a great conflict of sufferings for the kingdom of God? And for the gospel of Jesus Christ, or are you just playing around? What does this all mean to you? He says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word spectacle? When you hear someone made a spectacle of themselves, what is that? In this context, to be a public spectacle is to make an ass of yourself. No one wants to make a fool of themselves. No one wants 
to be a public spectacle. That's what happened with these people. What do you think happened to them? He says that they were ridiculed. He talks about reproaches. That means people saying things about you. Making fun of you. He talks about abuse, tribulations, actual suffering that came because they had wrapped all of their life around the kingdom of God. Have you ever been a public spectacle because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ever been publicly ridiculed because of your absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ, your King? Do we even have any clue what this means? Let me show you another example of what this looks like. I think on the screen we should have Acts chapter 5. Is that right? Got it? Acts 5, starting in verse 17. Uh, Listen to this example of what this looks like. I'm going to take you to all kinds of passages this morning. I'm breaking all the rules about this, so bear with me. Um, Maybe it'll keep you on your toes. Acts 5, 17. It says, um, but the high priest rose up. This is talking about a a circumstance that happened with the, the early apostles and disciples in the city of Jerusalem. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. This is like being put in the, in the uh, drunk tank down at the county jail. Threw them in with, with the, the criminals. Everyone knew they were there. Threw them into the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the synod of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. They're in the mood for for blood. But the officers who came back or who came, did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, Jesus Christ, whom they're preaching about. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. This is as serious as it gets. They are lusting for their blood. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, this is the man who taught the the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he was trained as a rabbi, sat under Gamaliel's feet. Same man. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. What's the point? This Theudas guy, remember him? He gathered people around him. He came to nothing. These men are nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. This man was a fanatic. Nothing to worry about. A nothing. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. Not even worth messing with. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even found fighting against God. Gamaliel is saying, listen, these guys are kooks. They're crazy. They're nothing. They're fundamentalist extremists. They're right-wing fanatics. They're homophobes. We know their type. They come and they go. They come... And they gather a crowd around them, and they're crazy. They're a flash in the pan. Don't worry. Nothing will come of them. They are nothing. Don't even bother engaging them. They're just like these other guys. They're nothing. Verse 40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They got a little bit of blood out of the deal and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released him. Now, how do the apostles respond to this? This is what it means to be a public spectacle. Ridiculed, a public spectacle before everyone. How do they respond? Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, picture this scene. Can you see these men walking out of the council meeting where they've just been flogged, just been ridiculed, just been called nothing, just been ordered not to teach anymore? Walking out of the council meeting, Peter, did you hear that? Did you hear what they just said about us? They think we're crazy. They think we're kooks. That's great. They're rejoicing. They're actually rejoicing that these men had said these things about them. Rejoicing that they have been considered worthy to suffer shame 
for the name of Christ. Can you, can we even begin to relate to that? Because suffering shame is the one thing that we hate the most. It's maybe even more hateful to us than suffering physical harm. Because if we can suffer physical harm and still be noble in the eyes of men, we'll take that. But to be considered nothing? These men are rejoicing. A couple years ago, Abram Hess, <laughs> yep, there he is, um, had written some things in the, in the student newspaper online and uh, as a column, columnist. And um, being faithful to Scripture, going against the culture, and someone wrote in uh, white shoe polish across the windshield of his car. Do you remember this? Wrote the word homophobe across the windshield of his car. And um, what would you have done if someone did that to your car? What would you have done? Hightailed it to the, to the car wash? How long did it take for it to wear off, Abram? A month? You could have scraped it off easy, right? So for a month, Abram drives around Bloomington, Indiana, with homophobe written across his windshield. Why? I suspect that it was something like this. He considered, he rejoiced that, that he had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Christ. He rejoiced. Have you ever suffered public ridicule for the sake of your king? You're just an uneducated bigot. You obviously don't understand the sophisticated culture we live in. You are intolerant. The greatest sin of our culture. What happens when you hear people talk about other Christians that way? What happens when you hear unbelievers talking about other groups of Christians and say those kinds of things about them? What do you think? You want to distance yourself from those Christians, don't you? I believe what you believe. You know, we believe the same kinds of things, but can't you just be a little more reasonable? Can't you just be a little more sophisticated, a little more savvy, a little more nuanced? You think, if these unbelievers could just get to know me, they would know how nice I am, how cool I am, how up-to-date I am, how sophisticated and understanding and intellectual I am. And then they'd like me, and then they'd like Jesus too, because they'd see that he's cool and sophisticated and intellectual and understanding and nuanced. Do you know what it means to suffer shame? For the sake of Jesus Christ, publicly. There's another passage that shows the apostles undergoing public shame. 
and embracing it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, follow along with me as these words are in front of us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And you have to hear in this passage the, the uh, sarcasm dripping from Paul's pen. Just listen for it. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's talking to Christians who have become proud. He says, you are already filled. You, you have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle, there's that word again, to the world, both, angels, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. We apostles are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. The scum at the bottom of the, of the cup. And you think, yes, that's exactly right. That is, that is an apostle's job, right? It's the apostle's place to be ridiculed. It's a pastor's place to say hard things in public and to make a fool of himself so that I don't have to. That's what we pay them for, right? Nope. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you. What's he say? Be imitators of me. This isn't just for the special class. It's for all of us. You do exactly the same thing. So how are you absorbing your life into the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is bigger than you. How are you absorbing your life into it? Or is it something that you've kind of tacked around the edges of your life? Something that you sprinkle over the top of your kingdom. One more passage. I want you to be overwhelmed with how normal this should be for us. And that's why I want to show you where it is everywhere. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 1. Just listen or read with me. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision 
who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things... I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What do you think when you read those words? Honestly, what do you think? You think, if you're anything like me, you think this guy was a nut? He was a fanatic. He was extreme. Or maybe not so harsh as that. Maybe you just think, yeah, but he was an apostle. This is the way they're supposed to be. He's supposed to get all worked up like that. Nope. Nice try. He won't let you dodge it. Look at verse 17. Brethren. Join in following my example. Not just me. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. This is just normal. This is the normal life of a Christian. For many walk, verse 18, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. No suffering. No shame. They're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. They glory in the things they should be ashamed of, who set their minds on earthly things. So who is your God? Who is your God? Who are you willing to lose everything for? You say, Jesus Christ. That's what these people would have said too. That's why he's crying about it. He says it with tears. Is your God your belly? Your appetites? Do you glory in things that you should be ashamed of? Is your mind set on earthly things? Do you hate the thought of suffering and shame for Christ? Are you an enemy of the cross? Are you living as if everything you are and everything you have is worth losing for the sake of God's kingdom? Respect, tenure, invitations to all the good parties, promotions, comfortable relationships with your family, Anonymity with your neighbors. 
Is that stuff worth losing? For the sake of Christ? If it's not, then that's what your God is. Brothers and sisters, these things that I've just listed are are significant things, but they're nothing compared with what the people in Hebrews 10 chose to lose for the sake of God's kingdom. They're nothing. You will be able to live in your nice house and have your nice things, even if people despise you. Not so with them. Turn back to Hebrews 10 with me, where we started. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Identifying, they identified themselves with people who had been marked out as Christians. They had gone to serve them. They had gone to help them and minister to them as they were being persecuted. And that, what that meant is, here am I. I'm a Christian too. You want to persecute someone? Here. You can persecute me. That's what they did. Publicly. Became sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And accepted Joyfully, the seizure of your property. Does that make any sense to us? Can you imagine looking over your shoulder, seeing the windows of your car being bashed out, and saying, that's great! Can you, does that even begin to compute with us? Now, how did they do it? It will make no sense until you factor in how they did it, and then it makes perfect sense. What made them able to do that? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Here's the key. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Put that into the equation, makes perfect sense. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, factor all this in and it makes perfect sense. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Do you see what he's saying? It makes perfect sense. The only way to live like this, which is to say, the only way to live like a Christian, is to think and believe like a Christian. He says these people were able to act this way because they knew something. They knew that they had a better possession And a lasting one. They knew with certainty and with confidence that there was something better than their stuff, something better than the respect of their peers, something better than comfortable family relationships, something better than money, something better than tenure, something better than a secure job, something better than a good reputation. 
they knew with confidence that they had a better possession and a lasting one. And they knew this was something more than just intellectual assent. They knew it so deeply that their souls, in their souls, that they actually changed the way they lived. And it changed the way they lived, not just in a nice little personal, private way. It changed them to the core. So that at the most basic level of their hopes and their loves and their hates and their securities and their fears, they were changed. They had transferred all of their allegiance from the treasures that they could see to the treasures they could not see. And they were so convinced that the treasures they could not see were better, more satisfying, more pleasurable, and more lasting, more durable, more eternal, more abiding, that they joyfully gave up everything they had in this world. They gave up everything that you and I take for granted as absolutely necessary for even a shred of happiness in this life. They gave it all up. We have to begin to think like this. We have to do the math. That's all they did. All they did was do the math. We have to sit down, we have to kneel down before God and think, what do I have to lose? What is the worst case scenario of everything that I have to lose? And what is it that I have to gain? Paul says in Romans 8, I think, the sufferings of this present life aren't even worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He did the math. It's nothing. Do I really believe that there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand or do I doubt it? Do I do I constantly have to hedge my bets just in case actually the only source of pleasure for me ever will be in this life? Put my hope in pie in, pie in the sky by and by, but just in case I'm going to get as much comfort in this life as I possibly can. Because after all, maybe it's all just, you know. Do I know God and do I believe that he will keep his promises to me? Do you? Do you believe anything that we have sung this morning or read this morning or prayed this morning? Do you believe it or is it just ride in a nice film over the top of your life. These people believed it. And that knowledge of this eternal and all-satisfying treasure gave these people confidence. And that's why the writer warns them, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Some of us used to have a real knowledge of this better and lasting treasure in Christ. We used to be more radical, more faithful, more bold, more obedient, more willing to go anywhere and do anything for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But many of us have thrown away our confidence. Thrown it away. 
It is only when we hang on to that confidence that we'll ever be able to obey God. Because we also need endurance. He says, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Do you have endurance? Are you in this for the long haul? Have you, have you erased from your knowledge that certainty of a better possession and a lasting one? Have you thrown away the confidence in God that flows from that knowledge? Have you gotten lazy? Have you, have you settled in? Have you given up the fight and settled into mediocrity and blandness because fighting and striving for the kingdom of God was too hard for you. These are strong warnings. No endurance. Do you see what he says? No endurance. No promises. That is what he says. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. No endurance, no promises. If you shrink back, you will be destroyed. That is what he says. Which brings me to my, to my second and last point. This is a matter of life and death. Right before he writes the passage in Hebrews 10 that we've been looking at, he says this starting in verse 26. So just backing up just before this. In verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No more sacrifice for sins. A terrifying expectation of judgment. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Vengeance. Terrifying hands of the living God. Who receives all of those things? I'll tell you, you and I are in danger of receiving all of that. You and I are in danger of receiving all of that. These warnings are given to men and women just like you and me, who have heard over and over again of the kingdom of God and of the blood of Christ and of the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone in this room right now, someone who's in this room, will fall away from the faith and become an apostate. And the fact that you're here and the fact that you've been taught faithfully by the elders and pastors of this church and other faithful churches will only make your judgment worse. You have come up to the edge of the kingdom of God. 
maybe even tacked it around the edges of your life. You have blended in, you have adopted and adapted to the culture of this church. To some degree, you've looked Jesus Christ squarely in the eye through the, through the preaching of the Word of God week by week. And you will ultimately trample him under your heel and go on to better things. I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is. But one of us will turn away from God in this coming year. It happened last year. Why won't it happen this year? It will happen. Some of you have already turned away from God in your heart. You're still going through the motions, but in your heart you have trampled him underfoot because he didn't give you what you really wanted. He wasn't enough for you. You wanted a happy family. You wanted good health. You wanted an easy life. God didn't follow the script that you had written for him. And so now you're done. You're done. He didn't jump through your hoops. The only reason you're still here is because you're afraid of what what, what people will think of you if you leave. Um, Or you're married to someone who keeps coming, and so you've got to keep up appearances. A lot of you young people certainly only come because your parents drag you. Because you've turned away from God. Listen, brothers and sisters, a lot of things will happen in this coming year. Someone here may die. Chances are. Someone here will lose a child or a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. Many of you will make decisions this year that will permanently change the trajectory of your lives for better or for worse. Some of you will get married. Uh, I'm not one for New Year's resolutions, but we are standing on the brink. Forgive me for this, because it's a terrible cliche. But it's the only way I can think to put it. Today really is the first day of the rest of your life. (laughs) It is. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? going to continue on the path that you're on now? Some of you will believe and will and will act on that belief. This year, some of you will finally understand what it means to trust God and you will act on that belief and and God is going to do powerful and amazing things through you. Some of you will grab hold of the promises of God And will use those promises to kill your lust, to kill your greed, to kill your pettiness. Some of you will take God at his word and live your lives for the kingdom of God. If and only if you will be willing to come face to face with the living God and throw all of your eggs into his basket. Stop hedging your bets. Stop holding back. And will actually believe that the God of the universe 
is worth trusting. Some of you will do that. Some of you will turn away. Some of you will dig in and stay exactly where you are. Søren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian who died 150 years ago or so. And he wrote this, and I'm afraid it describes us very well. He said, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? It's where we are, isn't it? Come up right to the edge and then claim, oh, I just don't understand what that could mean. He goes on. He says, herein lies the real place of Christian, so-called Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship. What would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, is this us? Is this you? Will you believe God and act accordingly? Or will you spend yet another year insulating yourself from the danger of taking all of this too seriously. Insulating yourself from the danger of getting too close to God. Let's pray.